ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to take this moment to say thank you for listening to the Real Rescue Podcast. It means a lot to me that you enjoy these stories as much as I do. Since the start of this podcast, we've had a lot of support from all over the world. It has been amazing. Now, we have companies joining our team that also want to say thank you for all that you are doing out there standing the watch. These companies are offering discounts on their products as a way to support the rescue community and those tuning into the Real Rescue Podcast. Just go to therealrescue.com, click on Sponsors, and see these incredible offers for yourself. This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Access. Because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, clear communication is of the utmost importance. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. And Versalips, to be your best, you need to squat your best. Breeze Eastern, they dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG wireless ICS system can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise-canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircraft worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at axness.com. That's A-X-N-E-S.com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, longline, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With the certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew, they are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REALRESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering another 10% from their partners, Petzl, and their equipment. All you got to do is send an email to info at sr3rescueconcepts.com 
mention this podcast, The Real Rescue Podcast, and they'll take care of the rest. And Versalist. When you're at the gym working on your squats, building your leg strength for the next rescue mission, depth matters. If you're like me, getting below parallel on your squats is tough. Well, allow me to introduce Versalifts Heel Inserts. These gems have become one of my new favorite accessories in my gym bag. Simply place them into your regular training shoe, either on top or underneath the insole, and bam! You've got a heel lift benefit of a weightlifting shoe, but the comfort and flexibility of your regular trainer. So the next time your workout just has heavy squats, grab your V2 strength inserts. Or how about a run, pull up, push up, air squat, and another run? Grab your V2 endurance insert. Or my own personal workout of running, clusters, and ring muscle up. Grab your original V2 inserts and go crush it. Check them out today at vlifts.com or on Instagram at Versalift. And when you're ready to get a few pair of your own, make sure you get your 10% off with the Real Rescue discount code. Squat well, friends. Coming up next, we've got a pilot coming to us. He's got stories down from the Caribbean, up to Alaska, down to Washington State. And the greatest part about this is every story is completely different. They're totally off the mark from what we normally hear. It just goes to show, you never know what you're going to get. So please welcome our next guest, United States Coast Guard pilot, Mr. Andrew Jerolimic. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue Podcast. Today, I've got a pilot out of the U.S. Coast Guard. He's actually flying civilian side right now. Uh, him and I met in California at, like, uh, I guess, I don't know. Was that one of your first units, Andrew? Yeah, first one out of OCS, Group Air Station, Humboldt Bay. Dang. Yeah. So you were, like, really great. Were you a butter bar at the time? I don't even remember. I was a butter bar. I was the, uh, yeah, was just a butter bar. Not the bull ensign, <laughs> just the butter bar. Oh, that's awesome. Love it. Love it. Well, you know what? You've had an amazing career, and now you've uh, you've come on here to tell some stories, and I'm so excited about it. So, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Andrew Gerolimic. Is that Did I get that right? You nailed it. Nailed it. I did? Okay. Because I always question that. Like, it was it was back in the day, it was so much easier to just say, hey, sir, what's up? Sure. <laughs> Yeah, that's okay. That works too. <laughs> I love it. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on and uh, and just, yeah, telling some of the stories in your career and what you did. So, But before oh, yeah. we get into that too much, if you don't mind, just a little background about you, who you are, how you got into Coast Guard search or into the Coast Guard in general, and then search and rescue, helicopters, aviation, all the cool stuff that we do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I grew up outside of uh, Denver, Colorado. Um, had some inspirations as a kid being a pilot, friend's father. Uh, he was in Vietnam, flew helicopters, and was a corporate pilot. So just hearing his stories was great. Also, there was an orange A-star flying around uh, the Colorado area, Flight for Life Colorado. Um, so seeing that kind of inspired me. So I'd, I'd always kind of wanted to be a pilot. Um, but I got busy just doing sports and stuff in middle school, high school. Um, so that kind of took me out to the East Coast. Uh, I went to Colgate University played lacrosse and studied geology there. Um, so kind of did that through the- Wait, geology, the, um, really? Rocks? Geology, yeah. 
Oh yeah, rocks. It was great. So, <laughs> you went from was... studying rocks to flying helicopters. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's uh, kind of funny and awesome. Was, the first class was easy, and then the rest was just whew, it gets harder after after a while. So um, really, it's yeah. Rocks. So oh yeah, yeah. I'm just it's playing. Like I'm playing to any geologist out there. I'm just playing. <laughs> it's like a mix of chemistry, physics, and then geology, and it gets hard after after a while. Wow. So. I got a rock yeah. in my backyard. I got to get rid of. Can you come help me? Oh, sure. I can. I'll figure out what it is, and then I'll tap on a hammer. And I don't figure something out. So, all right, yeah. I, I'm in. Yeah. All of a sudden, I don't care about any of your pilot stuff. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go talk about geology. Yeah. I'm Let's in. Find gold, so. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Sidetrack. Sidetrack. Terrible. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So in in school, um, I was nearing graduation, uh, and I reached out to the Coast Guard recruiter outside of Syracuse, New York. And uh, I was moving back to Colorado, so he kind of referenced, re referred me back to um, the Colorado recruiter uh, and said, hey, you know what? You'd be more competitive if you uh, worked for a little bit longer. And I was like, yeah, that makes kind of sense. I already have a job lined up. Um, so when I was back in Denver, I was an environmental consultant, and uh, I was collecting water samples uh, for coal bed methane wells. And so I was taking these samples and dropping them off uh, to a sampling company in a shopping mall that happened to be the Armed Forces Recruiting Center. And nice. uh, the Coast Guard one was right there. And so it was like easy because I kept seeing it. And I was like, oh, I should go over and talk to him. I should go and talk to him. And then one, you know, one day I kind of dropped the sample off and then walked up to the door and it was locked. And so I turned around kind of just like, oh man, I was almost, almost there. Uh, but as I was approaching my, um, my car, this guy's like, hey, buddy, like, and hollered at me and said, hey, he's going to be here in a bit. I'm meeting him. Um, it turns out he had an anchor and a star on it. And at the time I had no idea what that was, but it was a senior, senior chief. chief. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he, he just kind of, you know, prevented me from getting in the car, had me, um, just wait. And then I was able to get all the stuff together and, uh, put that package in, took about a year to get everything together, uh, applied for officer candidate school. Would it be? beginning of January or beginning of 2008 got in in June and then I ended up uh, going to OCS in August and then finally graduated December and that's when I went to, uh, got my first unit uh, group air station Humboldt Bay and that's where we met um, so yeah yeah so that was fun like just one of the stash ensigns we were um, the CASA was coming online so they had a, a lot of uh, opening for flight school um, but they had to stash some of us um, kind of to build our resumes and also just get experience and then um, just kind of keep the, the pipeline going through flight school. So there was three of us, Matt Hargrove, who you've talked to on this podcast before, Tim Motor yep. and myself. And uh, we just kind of, you know, worked in the command center, uh, helped the, the bosun and the chief out with RFOs uh, with the stations and just, um, yeah, just kind of kept doing a, just building our resumes essentially for flight school. Uh, so then in, and then we played a lot of football too. I forgot about that. So, oh God, yeah, it was yeah. amazing. We yeah. played a ton of football. Yeah. It yeah. was supposed but, to be uh, touch football, it, but a lot of us ended up on the ground for many, many play after play after right. play. <laughs> right, right. But I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to go down to Alameda with you guys. I was in SAR school out in um, Yorktown. Oh yeah, um, that's right. So I, I didn't get to do that. But uh, but yeah, that's um. So kind of. Uh, did the command center thing until uh, got into flight school and I left February of 2010. Um, and so then flight school, that took about 22 months and was assigned finally um, 
uh, Air Station Clearwater in 2011, the end of 2011. Flying um, castles so clear... or going into 60s? Nope, flying 60s. So, oh, yep. wow. All right. Yeah, so cool. I, I, I avoided the CASA draft. Um, wow, so, good for you. Yeah. Well, sorry for all my CASA drivers out there. Sorry. Oh, no, they're great. They're great too. But yeah, I was able to avoid that um, and get Clearwater. Um, the only issue with that was Clearwater was the last, I believe the last unit to switch from MH60Js to Ts. Um, so I ended up having to wait about eight months to go to transition course in Mobile. Um, so I stood so much operations duty officer, like beyond what you could even imagine. Um, just waiting and waiting and waiting for, uh, for my chance to go. But yeah, and 2012, I went to Mobile, and then, then from there, just uh, upgraded aircraft commander, transferred in uh, 2015 to Kodiak, and was there from 2015 to 2018. Uh, my last year there, I was a flight safety officer, and then left there to Astoria in 2018, finished up my safety officer, and then in 2022, I separated from the Coast Guard. Uh, and now I'm flying, yeah, helicopter and ambulance in uh in the Pacific Northwest. So yeah, find EC, EC-135. So. Sick, man. Oh, that's yeah. killer. What a good yeah. uh, good career all the way through. Well done. Yeah, that's it's awesome. been good. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's back up to the uh, the very first SAR case that you, uh, that you remember. Yeah, yeah. First SAR case, um, it wasn't my first SAR case, but it was the first time I hoisted operationally. And I think that was like one of the more memorable ones I had. Uh, I like because that. Because it was uh, very hard, by the way. Uh, but also um, in Astoria, I was there with the flight mech, and he was uh, uh, the um, the chief in maintenance control. And we would chat about it all the time. Every time I saw him, it was Justin Simback, and I would see him, and we would just chat about it all the time because it was just like uh, my first one. And it was like there were so many dynamic things we'll get to in it uh, that we just always were talking about. It. So yeah. Um, what did it was? We were um, based out of Autech, which is the um, the island, Andros Island, just to the west of Nassau, Bahamas. So uh, it was a, I don't, what Autech? Like I, oh, I don't even know what that is. Autech wow! Is the, I just, I'm about to learn something new that the Coast Guard has that I didn't know what it was, dude. <laughs> right. It's the Atlantic Underwater Testing Evaluation Center, and it's where the tongue of the ocean is between Andros and Nassau and it's like 6,000 feet deep. So the submarines can go through there and do all sorts of sub games. And so the submarines it's will be like there. It's all secret stuff that we're not supposed to really talk about. But no, I think it's like oh, okay. open source information. Oh, okay. Perfect. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, I don't want to be getting the... you in trouble right now, Andrew. Come on, man. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> but the um, so it's really deep water there, and then the uh, the submarine finders will go find them. So the, the Romeos and uh, whatever one of their uh, helicopters will go find them, and then they have launch like torpedoes and have torpedo pickers up. Yeah, all sorts of weird stuff going there. But yeah, so the Coast Guard was based out there when I was there, and we would just do search and rescue and drug enforcement in that area and migrant interdiction. Um, Very cool. But on that, Very cool. yeah, on that day. We, um, there was a gentleman on a pretty big uh, bulk carrier or freighter uh, that had appendicitis. Uh, so he was about 170 miles from where we were and about 80 miles from uh, Elustra, Bahamas. Um, and so we, uh, we ended up, yeah, getting the call and heading out that direction. About, uh, so it was me as the co-pilot in the right seat. Tom English was the, uh, the uh, aircraft commander, Justin Simback, the flight mech. 
And then Andrew Rugo was our rescue swimmer. And um, so yeah, just trucked out that way pretty far. And as we got on scene, we saw this huge ship uh, with enormous cranes on the front, the back, uh, bow stern, sorry. Nah, <laughs> hey man, we're aviators. You could say nose and tail and I would know exactly what you're talking about. Okay, totally. <laughs> yeah. But then, uh, Girl, I so thought you were in the Coast stern. Guard. What? Right, right. <laughs> uh, but so bow and stern were out of the question because uh, there's so much stuff there. And then uh, midships, there was uh, space for us, but there were two cranes that just weren't, they were in the way and then there were guidelines from the cranes. So our only option was like 160 to 180 foot hoist. So this is, mind you, this is my wow. first one. I'd only been hoisting to the um, to the little training boat in uh, uh, outside of Clearwater, essentially. And you could kind of tell as we showed up, uh, the aircraft commander Tom was like, "Man, what did I get myself into? Is this guy going to be able to to hack it?" <laughs> and and you know, it was it was hard, but as we as we pulled into it, we said, "Yep, 180 foot hoist, like that's where it's going to be. This guy's not ambulatory, um, so we're going to have to send our swimmer down." And um, so yeah, we pulled into that hover, attached two tray lines, and got it um, started sending it down, which seemed like forever. And you know, uh, you know, with the amount of tray lines down, uh, 210 feet almost, and then uh, just one well, little weight bag. Yeah, Every trail right. line on the U.S. Coast Guard is 105 feet. Well done, yeah. sir. The math, right? The math. That's really good. <laughs> so, but yeah, I remember Justin pulling it back up, and he's like, man, we need to add more weight. Uh, so we ended up adding the heavyweight uh, trail line or trail bag, weight bag to it, and then um, getting it down, eventually getting that trail line on deck. Um, me just kind of, you know, it being my first one just all over the place. I just remember that. That was tough trying to get a hoist reference out of that. Uh, but then sending down uh, Andrew all the way down to the deck, lit her down. And then we had also planned to have the train line stay with one of the crew members so we didn't have to deliver it again. A uh, little bit of a language barrier. And he, after Andrew got down to task, that train line just sailed off again. And he chucked it off. <laughs> so we, we, we had to deliver it again, which we didn't really want to, um, just because it was pretty tough the first time. So, um, Dang. but yeah. So, you know, as Andrew uh, packaged the uh, the guy up, we just kind of tried to get our bearings straight again, and we delivered it. I think it went a lot smoother that second time just because I kind of had a little bit more idea of what I was doing. Um, wow. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty solid. Got the guy up and got him to the, the hospital in Nassau, and just like that, you know, first operational hoist was at 180 feet. <laughs> Dude, that's so, crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so. Out of curiosity, so I, you know what? Can we debrief this a little bit? Because now, now I got, yeah. I got a couple of questions. So, the oh, first yeah. one, um, bridge wing. Did you guys ever look at the bridge wing as an option? I, if I remember, that crane on the stern was in the way, and so the bridge wing oh, wow. really wasn't an option. Uh, okay. It was a, it was a weird ship, as in like there was cranes everywhere, and the bridge wing was kind of like tucked underneath the cranes or something. If I remember right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It was definitely a, a peculiar ship. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now when you roll into your hover, um, for your hover references, was there ever a spot where you could have come down in altitude or if you had come down in altitude, you would have, it would have potentially the rotor blades would have hit something had you gotten too close I, to the ship. If, if I remember the, there were guidelines off of the, um, off those cranes and other cables between them. So we couldn't come between them. Um, wow. So you had to stay up high. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah. And then as far as hover reference, it was the tops of those cranes, essentially, that I was looking at. So, and as they're, they're moving, like, you know, back and forth, so you have to kind of average out what's going on with them. And it was, it was really hard for, for me in the first one. So, but I'm sure there's other folks out there that have had first uh, operational hoists that have been, you know, in the surf or something and stuff like that. So, but yeah, it was a good one to, to, to good one to learn on. Yeah, so. for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's great. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you mentioned it earlier, like, a lot of the training that we do is just to like a small 46 foot um, Coast Guard vessel. It's, it's your right. choice into the back of it. You're usually like, what, 20 feet, 30 feet off the water at most? 30, 35 feet. Yeah. Uh, not very high. And, so. Yeah. Cause if you're any higher than that, then you lose your reference altogether and you're like, oh my gosh. So, right. But now you're talking a, a huge, huge ship with uh, uh, plenty of references. But if you can't get in close, now you're too high. That's wow. Right. Well done. Yeah, yeah. So that was the first one. So, yeah. what uh, is there anything that you like stands out to you that you learned out of that? I mean, like you said, you went in the second hoist and it was a lot easier because you knew your references and stuff. But is there any takeaways out of that? You're like, oh, had I done that different next time, it would have been blank. I, I think relaxing. I mean, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, I think just like <laughs> you just squeeze the crap out of that cyclic and your legs and butt and calves tense up. And then all of a sudden, like we're in flight suits so that i think tom was like hey man i can see the veins popping out of your forearm relax and you're just like oh yeah and then everything kind of just like you focus and you're like oh i just need to just take a breath relax you know pretend that the cyclic is a dove and don't squeeze it to death you know stuff like that so uh, i think i relaxed and then things went smoother and everything went smooth after that man yeah. it's sick yeah. i love it well done yeah. to you and your crew Freaking amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Heck yeah. yeah. Gosh, 180-foot hoist. Dang. That is a long, long way to travel on a hoist. Because you know, like even oh, as I a swimmer, imagine. I'm like, let's roll. Let's go. I'm just I'm it takes so long. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's funny. Nice. What a good, good first like operational hoist, man. Well done. Good oh, yeah. for you. So thank you. Right on. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, you uh, you and I have talked a little bit. We actually have three more we're going to go over, which I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Um, we're going to go in numerical order. I get to read some stuff here and then uh, and then we get to go into the nitty gritty about it. Yeah. Sweet. So here's the first one. Uh, this one is a letter of accommodation that you earned in January 11th, 2017. It says this. I note with pride and am pleased to commend you for your performance of duty on March 3rd, 2016, while assigned to Coast Guard Air Station Kodiak, Alaska. During this time, you were an invaluable member of the Coast Guard C-130-1790 rescue operation of two British sea kayakers stranded in sea ice near Little Diomede Island, more than 650 nautical miles from Kodiak, Alaska. With the conditions of the sea ice too thick to proceed, but too thin to support the kayakers and a commercial assistance unable to respond due to the deteriorating weather conditions. Coast Guard District 17 directed the launch of Coast Guard C-130-1790, Coast Guard Helicopter 6037 and Coast Guard Helicopter 6038, along with two backup flight crews. You and your crew boarded the C-130 along with an additional 860 crew for transport to Nome, Alaska, 
and immediately commenced thorough flight planning for the pending rescue operation. Once on deck in Nome, you expeditiously coordinated the launch of the 6037 and proceeded to the location of the stranded kayakers. Due to snow, in-flight icing, low visibility, and turbulence, you quickly acted to adjust a flight path to avoid deteriorating flight conditions. Then, once on scene, you acted as a safety pilot and oversaw the harness deployment of the rescue swimmer into the ice. Subsequently, high hoists of 80 to 100 feet were utilized to prevent rotowash from throwing ice chunks and causing injury. After recovery of the two survivors and the rescue swimmer, you coordinated the return transit to Nome, Alaska, and patient transport to local EMS. Your hard work and dedication are greatly appreciated. You are commended for your outstanding performance of duty. By meritorious service, you have upheld the highest traditions of the United States Coast Guard. Andrew, what the? You've got a C-130 coming from Kodiak, two 860s, and two extra crews going all the way up to Nome, Alaska for two guys stuck in kayaks. What? Yeah. Yeah, pretty Dude, crazy. that's huh? awesome. Yeah, so it was um, that – what a couple of paragraphs was essentially two, two and a half days worth of stuff that went into that rescue. You know, as, as far as level awards go, that's one of the lower ones, but as far as the teamwork that went into this, uh, it was freaking phenomenal. Like, well, and so wait, essentially just for the record, we, I say this all the time. We don't do this for the awards. The awards and the accolations are, are wonderful and, and a great bonus for what we do, but like it's the stuff like this that you right. we don't talk about enough, and and you're like, oh, you did what? Like it's yeah. ridiculous. All right, all right, sorry, yeah. sorry, keep going. <laughs> Two days. But yeah, so stuff. it was it was a it was a pretty cool one. So you know, if if anyone's been stationed in Kodiak, you know you'll hear the Sarlamov go off. It'll be you know put the H60 on the line, put the C130 on the line, and all the text messages will start going off. And it's like, news team assemble. Like everyone's getting yeah. text messages. <laughs> Who's available to go? And that's pretty much what happened. Like, uh, so these two guys, they were British adventurers. Um, uh, one dude had climbed Mount Everest a bunch of times with Bear grills for Christ's sake. Yeah, he, he climbed up Mount Everest with Bear grills, And so they had planned on uh, kayaking and skiing from uh, Cape, from the tip of like Alaska, across to Diomede and then to Russia. And this was just some thing they were trying to do. Uh, and um, they were well prepared though. So they had all their gear, they had satellite communications gear, they had the uh, warm weather clothes, food rations. Uh, they had a rescue plan with commercial uh, medevac. Uh, and they were just setting out to do this crazy crossing of the Bering Strait. And as they set off, um, they uh, ended up getting into a situation where it was like not uh, hard enough to ski on and too slush and too like slushy to kayak on. And so um, they ended up like getting stuck essentially and then trying to zigzag their way. But meanwhile, they're getting, you know, uh, drifted up towards the Chukchi Sea up north. And so they're kind of just like now in the situation where they don't know, you know, what to do. And so they called their medevac company and they were like weather checking them left and right and they're like we can't make it we can't make it like and so by that time they were getting updates about what the weather systems were coming in and a big one was coming and so at that point they 
they uh, notified the Coast Guard and said, hey, we need your guys' help because uh, we need to get out of here. And if, if we don't get out of here on this day, then that storm will come through and who knows what, you know, our condition. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the impetus of, of why we sent so many people is because we had to do it kind of within a certain window or yeah. else they would have been stuck and just drifting north towards pretty much the Arctic. So, uh, oh, so yeah, pretty wild. So, yeah, so there was, that was pretty wild. So the, the two H sixties departed Nome and to anyone that's ever departed, uh, uh, Kodiak and head up to Nome, it's not this easy little transit cause you're crossing all these different, uh, uh, the Alaska range, uh, you're crossing yeah. that. Usually the weather is just garbage between there. You're crossing the Kuskokwim uh, and um, Yukon River deltas. So there's no weather reporting. And then you're crossing Norton Sound over to Nome, uh, finally. So there's no, there's hardly any diverts. There's no gas. Like yeah. it's not an easy transit. So to those, yeah. to those folks, like, I've done it before too. That, that is probably one of the more challenging things pilot-wise is to do that transit up to Nome or down to Cold Bay or Dutch Harbor. So that's, that's just, pretty cool. Uh, let's so, throw this out there for perspective too. From Kodiak, Alaska to Nome, Alaska, how long is the flight time in an 860? Flight times, I think about three hours. It's probably 600 miles. It's it's so long. It, it's, it's a, a really long, long flight. Way. <laughs> yeah. That is it's not something I flight. had to do while I was up there, but like yeah. I, I watch guys go many times. Oh, yeah. and you're like, oh, take two cruise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so th those guys headed up uh, to Nome and then uh, yeah two more crews got into the C-130 and we kind of just got all of the things we needed and, and headed up to Nome um, we probably beat them by about an hour so we were able to kind of get ready turn around um, get all the fueling getting you know get that ready and so once they showed up we pretty much turned the aircraft around and headed out to uh, to the last known position which was like it's Diomede Island and Little Diomede so essentially we were looking at Russia uh, Russia's little uh, big diamond island. So we were about, we were pretty far up there. Um, so as you know, as we start transiting up there, we sent both 60s, one for self rescue, and then the other just in case we had a broken hoist or something, or something else happened with the aircraft, they would still be able to rescue them. And then the C 130 is kind of just high cover and for comms and whatnot. Um, so yeah, as we transited up there, we rounded the corner near this uh, little Air Force like facility called Tin City. And on the tip of that peninsula is this mountain that's like 2,200 feet. And I'll remember this so vividly as we were rounding the corner about three miles offshore, just getting sent into my straps from turbulence. I have never been in turbulence like that before in my life. Uh, and all of us kind of look at each other and we're like, what the hell just happened? Uh, and it just sure, sure enough, like the winds were out of the north. It just wrapped around that huge mountain. We were way offshore, but man, we just got rocked. So we're just like, hey guys, um, you should go further offshore uh, because you do not want to experience this. Uh, and so, so that was one thing I de de definitely remember um, about that transit up there. Um, but yeah, as we, uh, as we got on scene, you know, the weather kind of cleared up a little bit, thankfully, and uh, we were able to find them pretty easily. Um, but yeah, it was uh, cold. It was probably like negative 20 C. Uh, so oh my that's gosh. like what, zero degrees, almost zero degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so just imagine now you have rotor wash on top of that. Yeah. Um, so you're looking at negative 30, negative, you know, 35 wind chill. So that's going to be pretty cold. But as we, sh uh, as we pulled up, we found them, 
kind of did a little bit of a, a you know hoist brief hazard assessment said okay what's the ice look like those guys are pretty good right there looks like they're on solid chunk hey you know rescue swimmer are you going to be able to um do you feel like you're going to disconnect or you're going to just stay connected and you know we just as a crew just said hey you know if the ice is is going to hold you those guys are on it go ahead and feel free to disconnect it'll probably provide you a little bit of a, a easier time walking around and uh, also allow us to get kind of back a little bit so you can talk to them and, and the aircraft won't be as much of a factor. So we kind of proceeded that way. Um, so yeah, we put our swimmer down and at some point as he was getting everyone ready uh, to get hoisted, uh, he took a step back and fell into the water. Um, and so <laughs> we, I was watching oh, on the no. FLIR camera. So I saw him fall in and the flight mech and the aircraft commander uh, who was in the right seat saw him fall in as well. And so we just started sliding over to, for emergency pickup, right? Getting ready for that. Um, but because he had the air in his drive suit, he immediately just like went in and popped right back out. Um, so it was kind of like a non-factor, right? Um, yeah. Now he's just wet. He's wet now in negative 20 degrees C and went in like rotor wash. So no worries, sir. Uh, we're trained for that. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so that was one thing to, to, to deal with, but, um, yeah, we were able to um, hoist them pretty uneventfully. They obviously wanted to take a bunch of their stuff with them. Um, but, you know, John, was a, he was good about it. And he, uh, he said, no, you can only take like the necessary things you want. So, but we were able to start uh, heading back to Nome. Obviously, the weather uh, was not good because that's kind of how things end up being. But um, me being from Clearwater, I kind of had a, like a little oopsie moment. So um, as we were transiting back, we had um, got into visible moisture. So what does a good co-pilot do? They turn on the anti-ice, turn on the de-ice, and everything's working great, right? Yeah, well, yeah, we're going, yeah. we're, we're continuously down, and the rescue swimmer's like, hey, sir, can we get some heat back in here? And I'm like, hmm, that's funny. I never turned it off. I wonder what happened. Uh, and I'm like, oh, uh, turn the anti-ice on. Oh, yeah, you need the APU to run the ECS as well. <laughs> so these guys... <laughs> <laughs> these guys that we had just picked up and were freezing cold and the rescue storm that just fall in the water didn't have any heat for like 20 minutes <laughs> so well done sir <laughs> yeah I, I learned my lesson there oh <laughs> uh, you know i'm sure he said yeah. it super politely to you sir can i request the heat back oh, here <laughs> so polite and i was just was i felt like an absolute idiot but yeah that, that oh, happened absolutely. so yeah but yeah uneventful landing you know just kind of those guys were really thankful uh for, uh, for being able to, to get picked up. And um, a couple of funny other stories from this one is, you know, we put the aircraft away. They had to kind of figure out those guys just ended up uh, going away. Uh, and then we ended up seeing them again at the, the hotel uh, as we were all checking in. And so we were kind of shooting the shit about like what, uh, you know, how they get on there and everything. And I was like, wait, these guys are adventurers. They must have other adventures going on. So I was like, hey, what's your guys' next adventure you're going on without skipping a beat? One of them's like, I'm going to jet ski around Ireland. And the other dude's oh like, I'm running gosh. a marathon in Afghanistan. And so without skipping a beat, they were just like ready to do the next thing. So, I mean, clearly they're just adrenaline junkies. They really loved it. So, um, so that was pretty crazy to, to hear those guys' uh, reactions. And it kind of doesn't even end there because back when, you know, on lockdown and what would it be April of 2020, I got into a YouTube rabbit hole and I was watching uh, Global Cycling Network. And uh, this guy was trying to break the track record for riding a penny farthing bark 
penny farthing bike around a track for an hour. And those are those bikes with the huge, huge front wheels and tiny little rear wheels. Yeah. And yeah. his coach is the guy we rescued. So, <laughs> and so, oh my gosh. so I was like, whoa, how did that, that is a small world. And so I reached out to him and I said, hey, it looks like you're doing well teaching people how to ride these crazy old timer bikes. And he's like, hey man, you ever come to London, we'll give you a free tour. And I was like, sweet. Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, Man, yeah. that's awesome. So, <laughs> yeah, so that was that was pretty good. That was a pretty good good rescue. But it kind of doesn't even end there because as we landed, um, our uh, a couple days later, um, our flight safety officer said, "Hey, you know, we'd like to do a class D mishap on uh, the rescue swimmer falling into the ice." Um, class there was D no damage, mishap, really. Class D. So yeah, there was no miss. There was no damage, no injuries or anything. But we just wanted okay. to kind of provide some guidance to the fleet about what happened and why it happened. And so uh, the air crew on that day, or the air crew and pilots from that day were uh, me from Clearwater, the aircraft commander from San Diego, the rescue swimmer from San Diego, and the flight mech from Mobile. None of us were cold units, right? Okay. And so in the H-60-1, there was no mention of ice rescue training because as they had pulled out of Traverse City, that stuff just got removed and never put back in. So we never read anything about ice rescues. But if you went to the H-65-1, there was definitive procedures like, and pretty much the rescue swimmer doesn't disconnect unless there's like cars on the ice. Uh, and so had we known that, we definitely wouldn't have done that. And so John would have never fell, you know, fallen into the ice. Um, and so, you know, nothing happened, but what if he didn't pop up, you know? Yeah. Like stuff like that, you know? So. So that's kind of why we did it. And so that it could be eventually incorporated into this 860-1, which it was, and also put into the techniques, tactics, and procedures manual that ATC put out. And so that was like one of the catalysts to getting that stuff into the dash one, um, just by doing, you know, following the Coast Guard's great reporting culture and learning culture of like, hey, this happened. Like, this is what we learned from it. Look like, look what happened, you know? Uh, no one got hurt, but look, hey, everyone's going to get better from that. So that's just a great example. And that's why I kind of wanted to share this one, just because of the teamwork and then that the safety culture, uh, for sure. Uh, oh, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. it, it yeah. I, I, so again, to back up to the very beginning, the amount of resources that, that we throw, I say we, the U.S. Coast Guard is willing to put out to save those in distress is, uh, hey, everybody. They're doing it right, just so you guys know. All right, they got you. That's awesome. Um, two things I want to I want to actually go a step further with it, or kind of get into a little more with is the weather. It's uh, it's always been interesting to me that you know, and we talk about it like Coast Guard. Coast Guard goes out in zero zero. I I I can't speak for pilot side of things if you're gonna go out in zero zero, but there is that. Weather mins are too low for other aircraft and other assets to go, but we still find a way, or the U.S. Coast still finds a way to get out there before a big weather storm hits to get those in distress. Mm -hmm. That blows my mind. It really does, especially now, because I've been civilian for quite a while now. And, you know, and I look out at the weather, I'm like, yeah, we're not going anywhere. Like, I could go, but we're not going anywhere. And sure enough, we're not leaving. And then all of a sudden, you hear the H60 or the 865. And they're rolling out freaking amazing. So, yeah, 
no, that's been a huge change for me now coming to the civilian world is my weathermen's are hard men's. Like we aren't going to make adjustments because I'm flying under the operating certificate and also my my license. Right. Uh, I'm not busting that stuff. Cause, no. uh, and so our weathermen's are way different that you just don't bust them. And whereas in the Coast Guard, uh, if the risk was, uh, if the gain, sorry, was high enough, we would try to find a way. Sometimes we can't, you know, we won't go or we'll wait. Um, but we'll think about it, you know, um, whereas now what, you know, if it's low IFR or 900 foot ceiling, I'm only a VFR pilot right now. I can't go. Sorry. Yeah. Whereas I used to train in 200 foot, I could ask for a waiver, a training waiver and fly in, you know, 300 and a half, you know, if yeah. I wanted to, if, if the game was there. So, um, so yeah, it's a definitely a different big change. So. And, and for pilots, and again, I'm not a pilot. Like I can't sit here, but I I do work with you know Dave Catlin, and he does a lot of like VF or IFR stuff. Like you go inadvertent IFR, that stuff. Like I remember training that stuff. Like you said, you're going out in 200 foot ceilings and whatnot, and training in that. And but it's a mm -hmm. it's a great training tool to be able to go out and do that. What's your opinion as far as that for pilots? Uh like we. I remember, so in the Coast Guard, 502 is a pretty common training limit, um, and that's pretty solid. Like, um, for two aircraft commanders, like, we've probably experienced weather like that, so we don't need to go and you know, push those training bins. But for a new co-pilot that's never seen it before, that might go on their first rescue in weather like that, it might be worth, you know, transiting out from, let's say, Astoria in weather that's below our training bins. Just so they can, and maybe even just doing a low vis route outbound, low vis come back inbound. So they see yeah. everything that it takes to get that aircraft set up so that you can get out safely and return safely. Um, yeah. So if, if there's a gain to it, yeah, absolutely. Um, we would go hoisting Kodiak in Women's Bay back there in pretty snotty weather, um, not only to get men's, but also to just make sure that we were there. You know, we could, we could perform in those kind of conditions um, because on that dark and stormy, you know, if the gain's there, we'd have to go out and do it. So, yeah. Yeah, because a lot of the rescues don't happen in Clear Blue 22. <laughs> they, they do not. Absolutely not. So The weather yeah. is coming in. <laughs> For these right. guys in particular, the weather was coming in. So, oh yeah, yeah that's awesome. Uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on was you guys had mentioned, like, in your brief about having the swimmer connect or disconnect. I love mm -hmm. that. And the reason I love that is because I love options. I love the idea of having the options. Oh, can I disconnect? Can I stay connected or both? You know, is it, yeah. I get down there, I stay connected for a little bit. You know, this isn't going to work and I can come off the hook or, hey, you know what? Like this happened. He's came off the hook. That didn't work out. Got back on the hook. And now again, options. I love the discussion about that. So well done for you yeah. and the crew on that one for sure. Um, oh, yeah. Sweet. Dude, awesome. What a great uh, case. Man. It was a good one. It was a good one. So, well, thanks yeah. for sharing that one for sure. Oh yeah. Well, let's keep going. Uh, let me let me get to the next one. And this one is out of Cold Bay. And uh, yeah, let me just read this and and then boom, we're gonna get right into it. Sweet. Citation to accompany the award of the Coast Guard Achievement Medal, Gold Star in lieu of fourth to Lieutenant Andrew G. Gerolimic, United States Coast Guard. Lieutenant General Limick is cited for superior performance of duty while serving as aircraft commander of the deployed H-60 crew at the forward operating location, Cold Bay, Alaska, from 22 to 28 January 2018. 
demonstrated an exceptional operation acumen, risk management, and decision-making, Lieutenant Jerry Limick led his crew through extreme winter weather to save four lives and assist five more during the execution of six time-critical search and rescue missions. Heading into the darkness through blowing snow for the medevac of an injured crew member from the fishing vessel, Arctic Fjord, the crew arrived on scene to find the vessel violently heaving and pitching in 35-foot seas and 45-knot winds. Exhausting all options to lower the rescue swimmer, Lieutenant Jerolimic wisely judged the extreme risk to the rescue swimmer and patient to exceed the potential gain of the hoist and aboard of the mission. Called out for four additional medevacs, he successfully conducted initiative hoist from the diverse vessel configuration in Audrey's conditions to save four lives. Upon notification of a 406 EPIRB activation, made a call and a flare from the fishing vessel Progress, the crew courageously launched into 45 knot winds, quarter mile visibility, and freezing fog, finding the partially flooded vessel afloat and stable but without electrical power. Lieutenant Gerald Lemmick coordinated the vessel escort, ensuring the fishing vessel progresses safe return. Lieutenant Gerald Lemmick, diligence, perseverance, and devotion to duty are most heartily committed in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Coast Guard. Bro. Okay, we're not talking about just one, like, one rescue here. We're talking about six. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations on one award for six rescues. What? I tried, man, I tried to go higher and they just, I got a lot of pushback. But That's all good. That's all good. So I, let, me, let me let me back up yeah. just for a second. So while we're in station in Kodiak, Alaska, um, we have a couple different deployments that we go out. One of them during the summer is to Cold Bay, uh, sorry, to D Cordova. Uh, so we go to Cordova, Alaska for the majority of the summer, two weeks on, two weeks, you know, and then we're home for a bunch of weeks. Uh, the next one is over in Cold Bay. And then we have another one over in St. Paul. So this one, I assume is, was this king crab or blue crab season? Opies. So uh, snow oh. crabs. Yeah. yeah in so, January. Right. So yeah. snow crab season. And it, all it does is it brings the helicopter assets from Kodiak and puts them in Cold Bay. So a faster rest response time. So mm -hmm. You're on deployment. Yeah. Wow. What can I say? The cold day deployments, I just loved them because it was like, it's the best SAR. Like, totally. Hands down. Plus you get to uh, hang out with Bill and Mary. <laughs> uh, yeah. You build, well, so we stayed in, uh, we didn't end up staying with there anymore. The FAA had a bunch of houses that we took over. Oh, nice. Uh, so we would stay in like different houses. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty nice. It's like a duplex type housing situation. Um, but yeah, the family atmosphere, you have family meals together, like you're doing there, just, just SAR duty. It's, it's great. I loved it. Um, got to do a couple of deployments down there. Uh, but yeah, for that one, we were in um, uh, January for OP season. It was uh, me as the aircraft commander, uh, my ops boss, Commander Adam Merrill, uh, who hadn't finished his AKAC syllabus yet. So he was the co-pilot. Um, so he'd outranked already been you, stationed. But less on the helicopter. Oh, outranked me. <laughs> he was in. He'd already been stationed in Astoria, Sitka, uh, Clearwater, and then finally Kodiak. And I was the aircraft commander on this one. So I love it. <laughs> yeah. And so um, and so then our flight mech was Andrew Champagne. 
Uh, he was a uh, new flight mech out of Cape Cod, uh, deploying for, on his first deployment there. Uh, rescue swimmer was Russ Gazard. Watch captain was Tim Kukluski. Uh Line crew was Kendall Appelt and John Axelson. Hands down, one of the best crew I've ever deployed with. So that was pretty Very phenomenal. Very cool. Um, Way to shout out all the names. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so six cases in like seriously a week. It was incredible. Um, so that first one was the Arctic Fjord. It was a catcher processor, which is like a 200 foot or more or bigger boat that uh, catches the, the fish and then processes them into fish sticks essentially. So they're huge. And um, they have stuff all over the, the um, stern. And so really the only good place for some of them or most of them probably is the bow. Um, so this gentleman, uh, they were in pretty big seas. Uh, this gentleman got smashed between two fish totes and so had like pretty heavy internal injuries, uh, collapsed lungs. Um, the reporting was just like, he's, he's on his deathbed. Like, can you come get him? And, you know, he was still like alive. So we obviously said, yep, game is there. Let's go, let's go and do this. And so I just remember it being super dark, um, probably 25, 30 foot seas and super windy, probably above 35 knots. Um, so we headed out to, to their last known position. Unfortunately, the guy wasn't ambulatory. So we were going to, uh, to have to use a rescue swimmer to use a lifter. Um, and uh, as we got there, um, you know, we, we assessed the, the boat. And again, the bow hoist was, was where it was at. Um, but as a crew, uh, we kind of start to set boundaries essentially of like, hey, this is gonna be some upper level varsity stuff going on. Hey, Andrew, you're a new flight mech. Uh, you need to set boundaries on yourself of what you can uh, do. Uh, rescue swimmer, you need to set boundaries like on if, whether or not you feel safe that you can go down to the deck and come back, you know? And then as obviously as the pilot, do I have voice references? Can I do this safely? And then the, the uh, safety pilot just kind of being that all encompassing person. So definitely that was one of the things that we did is to set boundaries on what we can accomplish. Nice. Um, I really pulled into a hover and find, Oh, it was super solid, but yeah, pulled into a hover and eventually after a lot of tries, um, uh, got the trail line on deck. Um, but it was crazy. So the boat would just be like there, stable hover. Everything looked great. Hover references was there. And all of a sudden a wave that was way bigger would come in and the boat would just go away and it was just black and i was just i as a pilot you're just fighting to just keep keep it in the bubble um because all your hoist references just suddenly just disappear and so we we kind of were able to get the flight or the the uh, trail line on deck back off into a catenary and, and say hey can we still do this and it often a catenary was it was able i was able to have better hoist reference um but we put rust down about midway and started to, he started to get, kind of get tugged on by the, the trail line and get pulled over. And at that point, um, I remember Andrews was saying, abort, like, we can't do this. this is, I don't feel like I can get him down safely and back safely. Uh, so Andrew, this is, meanwhile, he is a brand new flight mech. This is his first operational hoist. Says, no, we're not doing this. Like, wow. let's, let's, let's come back, rethink this. Let's talk about what we can do. And so we ended up talking about it a little bit more. And saying, yeah, this is this is too dangerous. Um, let's see if he's uh, ambulatory. Can we put it? Send a basket down because uh, we proved that we could get a trail line on deck. So can we get a basket down? Get him in the basket and then hoist him up. And so we reached out to the captain and he said, yeah, this guy's he's he can't get in a basket. 
he's not ambulatory. So we're like, okay, um, we're gonna, we can't do this, sorry. Uh, so we are going to uh, depart scene. Um, and um, if you guys can just go to your first, you know, protocol, um, be on a comm sked with uh, the district and we'll talk to you. So that was probably as a, the aircraft commander, probably one of the hardest things I've had to do is say, be on scene and be like, I, we can't do it. Like, uh, wow. and so as we, you know, call for rescue checklist part three and start heading back, you know, the um, Camaro Merrill's flying back, but, you know, deep in my head, I'm like, God, what a failure. Like, oh my God, I can't believe it. You know, they were depending on the Coast Guard to get this guy off. Um, and, and we couldn't. Um, so as we land and start to debrief though, you know, I'm sitting there on deck, which is probably one of the greatest places, right? Yeah. Looking at my crew and just being like, hey, holy crap, what a great decision. Everyone is back here safe. That dude's yeah. probably okay. Like, we didn't put you guys, we didn't jeopardize our crew uh, unnecessarily, and we're all here safely. So it was like the weirdest set of emotions I've had of like, you know, being a failure, it feels like, to being like a freaking hero, like not doing, not putting those guys in situations that they should have been. So so that was a, that was a, a pretty big eye-opening learning experience about, you know, when to say no, for sure. Um, so that was day one, right? <laughs> holy yeah that you know there's so much i i don't i don't want to go on too far because there's so much to talk about with that like there's my gosh like wow what a decision his first operational hoist like that you're first operational 30 35 foot seas 45 knot winds it was big i get it yeah man i i 100 understand and get it what a tough call, and it's, man. Holy oh, it, it wasn't, it, I mean, it was not just him. He just, I think I was having trouble holding, holding a stable hover. Like he just, he called it. And, you know, I think we were all in that same boat. Like, you know, we did it. So, and Andrew's also the same guy that won the, this past year, uh, the HAI like um, safety award for calling out uh, when they should return to base from a fuel leak in the ox tanks. So that's the same guy. You know, so Andrew is just a top-notch guy, and um, yeah, so he's a you know, solid guy. So, the, so I, I've said it, and I'll say it again: we all start somewhere. We all have to learn from ground zero to get somewhere, and their emergency is not our emergency. Yeah, totally. You made the you made a good decision. Solid. Well done. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it was solid. So that, that was, was one of six <laughs> day one or yeah, day one or so. Um, the second star case, uh, it was from a catcher processor too. Um, I actually don't remember that one that well. Um, but commander Merrill had that voice. So probably with all of his experience, it was just so super easy. Just cake yeah, right? Yeah. So <laughs> the, the co-pilot, he did all right. <laughs> right. right. So, yeah, I don't, I don't remember honestly that one too much, but um, but then going to the third and fourth case, this is kind of crazy. So we were alerted of a guy that had um, he was on a fishing boat well north of Cold Bay, and he had seasickness for like days, and so he was starting to become like uh, dehydrated, and he needed to get off the boat essentially, and they weren't going to go to port because uh, they were just too far. It would have been several days, so that was the first uh, notification of a medevac, and so as we we're briefing. Uh, watch captains is like, hey, we got a phone call. So I'm like, okay, so what's going on? They're like, hey, uh, a fisherman just broke his femur uh, kind of in route there. Can you guys do two medevacs at once? 
and <laughs> we were like, okay, we need to ask some questions, but yeah, w- let me get back to you. And so wow. uh, as the crew, we, you know, pilots are like, okay, do we have the gas for this? Uh, we think so based on the winds that we're seeing right now. Um, and the, you know, the time of, we have our duty time and flight time and everything. So yeah, I think pilot wise, we can do this. Hey, flight Mac, do you have the space for this? Like, can you do a basket hoist and a litter hoist all at the same time with managing your cabin? Andrew Champagne also, he's just a new flight Mac. He's like, I got this, sir. So, and, uh, and then the swimmers like, Hey, we asked, Hey, can you do two, can you do patient care and do the rescues, both of these? And he said, we got this, like, let's do this. And so sure enough, we're going to go to two medevacs on the same flight to two different boats. Um, oh and gosh. so, yeah, so we head out. Uh, the first one hoist is pretty simple. He just put a basket down, got him up. Um, and uh, and then the patient care was really simple too, because he kind of managed a little bit of, um, you know, just, just checked his vitals and everything. And the guy just kind of passed out and went to sleep. So that was pretty easy. Of all the things you could have, that was, that was a good one. Uh, but then the uh, the litter hoist uh, for the guy with the femur, I remember um, there was just a lot of rigging. So you kind of had to thread the needle uh, with the trail line and everything. But then the dude, because his femur was broken, um, he had to, uh, he couldn't get his whole leg inside the litter. Um, so you kind of be hanging out a little bit. I remember that distinctively. So that um, was, it was, yeah. was his leg hanging out or they were they pulling traction or would you know? I don't know if they were pulling traction. I think his leg was hanging out. They just, he was in a position of comfort and they just didn't want to move it anymore. And uh, so his leg wow. was kind of hanging out of the, out of the litter as they were bringing it up. So I just remember, you know, it's as smooth as you want to be pulling that thing down into the cabin is, uh, I remember the screams from that guy. Oh yeah. My broken finger. Um, but yeah, so we were able to do two medevacs at once, which was a pretty cool one. So that was number three and four. Um, so yeah. And just dropped them off to, to Life Met Alaska and they medevaced them up uh, to the Anchorage area. So that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. There was probably way more to that because I was, again, the way it turned out is Commander Merrill got to do most of the hoisting because we flip-flop days. And so so he did a pretty good co- job as a co-pilot for you. What a, I mean, exactly. you know, that's I see in the aircraft. Sure. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I didn't get to hoist on that one either, but that's okay. That's okay. So, um, wow. Yeah, so that was the third, fourth case. And then uh, our fifth case, uh, don't remember this one too well, but it was just kind of a, a guy with a respiratory distress, uh, some kind of, yeah, some, something going on, you need to get off the boat. And so that was kind of more of your running, you know, medevac at night. It wasn't terrible conditions. Um, so that was a, that was our fifth case. And then we finally get to the sixth one, which is the fishing vessel progress. And this one is probably... I mean, one of my most memorable cases, and we didn't even hoist anyone, which is the craziest thing in the world. So, um, because this is the one that like every new Coast Guard aviator wants to hear. It's a Mayday, Flare, Eperb, abandoning ship, Coast Guard's going to go get them. Like, that's what it was. You're like, like all excited, and, and they're having the worst everyone, day of their life. <laughs> you know, and that's the way it is. We're going to be there, totally. and we're going to help them out. And it was like, when you got that phone, I'm getting freaking chills right now. So when you get that phone call, um, you just, it was just amazing. So, cause we were going to go out and do, you know, the King's business and go help these people. Um, but I remember it was like that night of weather was about 200 foot ceilings, less than a quarter mile of visibility. So we were below mins, um, blowing snow, winds greater than 30, 35 knots. 
like it was a bad weather. Uh, and so as we started heading out towards the hangar, the FA house is kind of um, probably, uh, I don't know, half a mile away from where our hangar is. And so we tried to drive one way, but the snowdrifts were too big. So we had to turn around and go the other way back to the hangar. <laughs> and like, had that not worked, we probably would have had to just got out and walk um, <laughs> to the to the hangar. So that was the first step of getting to the to the aircraft. But um, but I remembered like this was a high risk, high gain mission. Like we were ready to do this. Uh, I called the ops boss. Remember uh, calling them and um, hey, weather um looks to be below mins. We're we're gonna go. It's high risk mission and high gain. Uh, and they're like, run it at, fly safe. And so. We buttoned up, got the aircraft out, and I just remember taxiing from like taxiway light to taxiway light because that's as far as you could see forward, uh, oh, pretty yeah. much. Um, and so then we, yeah, get to the, the runway and set up all the gear on our aircraft, the OIR forward radar and everything, and headed off uh, to the north, uh, northwest of Cold Bay. Um, weather was kind of like that for quite a, some time. And then it suddenly kind of opened up, the sun started to come up a little bit. Um, so we were able to see a little bit more, which was nice. Um, but yeah, I, um, I remember like, uh, we were probably about five minutes out and, um, you know, have you ever heard the Tenacious D song tribute? I um, have so, actually. Yeah. So I, I don't know That's the awesome. lyrics. I don't, I don't know the radio transmission, but this is just a tribute, but it was essentially like us hailing the fishing vessel progress and saying we're Coast Guard Rescue 6004 we're five minutes out and his response back was like the greatest relief I've ever heard in someone's voice. And it just, it's like, it was the most amazing thing ever. Cause he was so happy that we were there for him because they were, they were about to just jump into the ocean and abandon ship in 35 foot seas. And oh, so it just like, I still remember that whatever he said, I just remember that it was just the most incredible thing. So, um, yeah, we were five minutes out, going to get on scene, and we just, we finally got there. Um, they had taken a rogue wave over their bow and had smashed all their whole pilot house, and they had lost engine power, electrical power, and just were ready to, ready to pretty much get knocked down. And uh, somehow they miraculously were able to get engine power back and eventually kind of intermittent comms, uh, not very reliable. And so as we were there on scene, just kind of orbiting, um, you know, things kind of got hectic because there were some good SAMs, but they weren't going to be able to do anything because the seas were so big. Um, yeah. So we kind of just orbited ready for anything to hit the fan, you know, just in case, um, you know, uh, their engines quit again or something. Uh, at this point, the C-130 got got there. And this was a pretty cool little trick I, I, I did was I transferred the on-scene commander role to them, uh, which lowered our radio comms uh, way down. So now we were able to just kind of like not do anything other than orbit and just talk about the case and like what we were going to do as opposed to like managing the case from an on-scene commander perspective. So that like little nugget of information, do that if you can. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. great. Yeah. So so that was pretty awesome being able to do that. Um, and things kind of settled down a little bit. They were able to get uh, more of their, you know, engines operating more like how they wanted to. Um, radios were still unreliable. So we ended up dropping them radio. Uh, and that was really the only thing we ended up doing on scene was just uh, getting them a radio. But they ended up getting a, a escort back to, I think, False Pass or Dutch Harbor somewhere around, you know, one of those two. 
uh, and they were fine. Um, but like we didn't hoist anyone. But again, one of the better cases I've ever had. And it almost didn't really end there because as we were transiting back, uh, we saw a life raft in the water. And we were like, oh man, here, here it goes again. We've got another big case. And so we start orbiting that and there was no one in it. And district had kind of correlated back to another one that came off. But the funny thing is I remember a rescue swimmer's like, put me in, I'm gonna pop it. And we are like, dude, we're like, Russ, dude, not in 25 foot seas. We're not gonna Whatever. do it. Whatever, it'll be totally fine. I went down in yeah. 30 to get an e-perm, it's, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so i remember yeah we were like hey we're not doing that so yeah and then finally you know it again it didn't, it didn't in, end coach, there because put me in you can do it in, I, can, I can get in there <laughs> oh yeah he, he definitely wanted to go in but yeah we um we ended up transiting back in the same weather so uh having to come back in you know on the Lovis route you know you're approaching the the field and it's still like one mile don't see anything half mile don't see anything quarter mile Oh my gosh, there's the rabbit lights. Okay, we've got it. Okay, we're gonna go. So um wow. so that was pretty uh that again, we didn't hoist anyone, but that was one of my my favorite cases I've ever done just because uh of that radio call. And then also just like the fact that we had to use as pilots every single tool in our toolbox to set that aircraft up to depart safely and return safely. And then just the fact that the, the CRM in that aircraft was just rock solid, like. And hadn't it not been, you know, things might not have ended uh, that, you know, up as, as well as they had. Um, so that was probably one of the most memorable SAR cases I've ever had. Didn't that week too. That was six cases. That was, that was incredible. So. Oh my yeah. gosh. So, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good, good, good week. Of, good week of SAR. So. Yeah. Andrew, yeah. well done. Gosh. Yeah. For all of them too, for every case. I, wow. Man, thanks for sharing all those. Good advice oh, yeah. on the back end of that too. I like that. <laughs> nice. Well, let's let's uh let's finish this out because I got one more here. Um okay. which is is kind of cool. And this one is uh let's see. Yeah, this is out of where the heck are you at here? Columbia River. Oregon. So you're out of yeah, Oregon, Astoria, yeah. Oregon. Okay. Well, let me read this one and then we'll we'll uh we'll crack at it and, and we'll get into this one. I'm, I'm all excited. I'm all pumped up right now. Come on, Andrew. <laughs> all right. Citation to accompany the award of the Coast Guard Combination Medal, Gold Star in lieu of second to Lieutenant Commander Andrew Jerolimic, United States Coast Guard. Lieutenant Commander Jerolimic is cited for outstanding achievement while serving as aircraft commander aboard Coast Guard 860. 6026 out of Sector Columbia River on 24 June 2021. A distressed paraglider had crashed into a tree 300 feet above a rocky shoreline at Cape Lookout State Park, and a high-angle rescue team had determined they could not reach the paraglider, leaving a helicopter hoist as the only option for possible rescue method. Lieutenant Commander Gerald Emick conducted a thorough risk assessment, then navigated the rescue helicopter 50 miles through low ceilings to the paraglider. Arriving on scene, the crew assessed the survivor of precarious position, then attempted a hoist rescue, which became obstructed by tree branches and snag hazards. As daylight waned, the crew made a second hoist attempt, during which Lieutenant Commander Gerald Limick held a precise hover for 15 minutes, 130 feet 
above the treetops to mitigate dangerous rotor downwash and allow the rescue swimmer to pull himself through the tree branches and remove the paraglider's harness. Despite the tree canopy and paraglider fabric obscuring the flight mech's view and garbled radio communication updates from the rescue swimmer, Lieutenant Commander Gerald Limit led his crew to smoothly and safely extract the rescue swimmer and survivor from the tree. Lieutenant Commander Gerald Limit, dedication, judgment, and devotion to duty are most heartily committed in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Coast Guard. Andrew! Oh, God, I love this stuff, bro. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good 130 one. 130-foot hover. Paraglider stuck in trees 300 feet. What? Dude, that was sick. That was, a, that was a good one. So, yeah, the, the crew on that one, it's, so it's me in the right seat, aircraft commander, co-pilot Luke Monchin, uh, flight mech Tim McCoola, and then rescue swimmer was Colton Courtway. Um, man, top-notch crew, uh, like, but we're sitting there. It's like I'm sitting at dinner, kind of, and the AOPS calls me, and he's like, "Hey, I've got an interesting one for you." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, let's hear it." <laughs> <laughs> and so he's like, "Because it was a onshore case, the full request hadn't come through yet." But he said, "Hey, there's a paraglider stuck in the tree uh, at Cape Lookout, which is just kind of south of Tillamook, uh, on the coast there." And um, he's like the fire department's on scene it's kind of like a mix of a high angle tree rest high angle rescue but it's on a cliff they don't know if they can do it um what do you guys think and we were like well um there's a lot of issues with this one but let's go take a look in the command center and take a look at the picture if they have one and and we'll just talk to, talk amongst each other so uh we ended up going to the command center and talking about um what some of the issues were going to be like hazards you know a parachute blown by rotor wash you know, uh -huh. what happens with that uh parachute <laughs> entanglement i know you guys in a school do a lot of that um in a tree i'm not sure but it still is a factor right so yeah <laughs> um but uh yeah and then like breaking branches you know causing the tree to fall over rotor wash on the survivor swing spins you know hoist references flight mech references like we talked about all that and we're like, okay, those are all of our hazards. You know, do you, Hey, flight mech, do, Tim, do you think you can do this? He's like, yeah, I, I think so. Rush summer, you think, yeah, we think we can do this. And so, okay, let's do this. Let's start heading that direction. Uh, let's remember, um, you know, we've all determined like, Hey, we think we can do this, but should we do this? Because, you know, if we roll in over top of him, like we could potentially kill him by just knocking the tree over. Uh, yeah. So let's not do that. Like we have to be so careful when we go assess this scene, uh, so we don't make it, you know do no harm to this guy. You know, if if we're not able to get him, maybe they can get a you know a, a lumberjack to go climb up that tree and you know do something like that. Something something <laughs> out of the box and you know uh, no, not a helicopter. You know, but yeah. So essentially, do no harm. Can we do this? And should we do this? We're about a bunch of the questions that we kind of asked ourselves. Um, but yeah, so as we uh, we transited down that way, you know, in typical Oregon coast fashion, the weather happened to just be a solid layer eventually. So we had to kind of make the decision whether or not to shoot a patch, which is a, a precision approach to a coupled hover, essentially pushing a button and it coming down, the aircraft flying itself down uh, to 50 to 80 feet usually. Um, thankfully, we didn't have to do that. And so we were able to find a kind of hole and we just transited about 200 feet underneath the layer. 
um, but ended up finding the guy pretty easily because he had obviously a huge parachute and a tree. <laughs> but just above him was about a 500 foot layer. And so he was probably at like 300, 350 feet over the water. So we kind of had that to kind of battle with us. Yeah. Um, so we knew we were going to be just underneath that the solid overcast layer. Um, but yeah, arrived on scene, saw him, you know, he looked to be like solidly in the tree. Like the tree looked to be pretty in solid footing. Um, and we, we were like, okay, I think based on what we're seeing, you know, from him being in that tree, I think it looks like the parachute's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to blow up into the rotor wash because it's still attached to him, still in the tree entangled in there. Um, you know, it's going to be kind of complicated to get the rigging out from like his uh, the tree and him and get the guy off of there. But that's for, for Colton to kind of handle. And he, he's been trained on how to, you know, kind of do that. So in the water, maybe not in a tree, it's a little different. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so we were able to, um, to finally uh, say, Hey, yeah, we can do this. And we're going mean, to, should we do this? Yes. I think we answered that question. Um, and so um, one thing that Tim and Colton kind of recommended, which I thought was just, you know, super clutch was like, Hey, let's, let's pull into a hover and let's go after them. And we're going to keep bumping up our altitude and seeing where our rotor wash is in relation to the, you know, the aircraft like center mass and see yeah. how low we can go or how high we need to go. Kind of just answer that question. And so we just ended up just looking at them for, for quite a time and just bumping up an altitude, finally finding our, our altitude that gave us the, the best hoist references, the flight neck, the best references, and then um, and then me as the pilot, just hoist references. So it ended up being about, you know, uh, I believe 130 feet above where the tree was, 300 feet above the water, underneath the layer, uh, where the rotor wash was still there, but it wasn't as bad as, you know, an H60 could put out. Um, so that was clutch on Tim and Colton's part. Um, I love it. So, love it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we were, yeah, 130 feet above the survivor. Uh, we felt like we had a good plan. And um, so we sent Colton down and, um, you know, I was holding the precise hover for quite a bit of time. And Colton finally got onto the, um, uh, the, the tree I was trying to get the rescue strap around him. And just the way that he had approached him was from a direction where the harness was in the way and he couldn't get the, um, the quick straps around him safely. So like, we think we're, you know, I think in my head, we're almost there. We're about to get off of him. They're off the tree. And all of a sudden he just aborts the hoist. And, we, and we're like, whoa, what's, what's wrong? Oh, okay, we got to do this over again. He needs to access the tree from the other side uh, just so he can detach the, um, the, the harness from the guy's parachute and then also get the quick stop around him. So we had to wow. do it all over again. Wow. Um, just something, something you just couldn't see from 130 feet above. And yeah. so, um, so we boarded the hoist, kind of rebriefed it, uh, sent Colton back down and he was finally able to get uh, access the guy to the, the correct side. And um, at this point I was able to uh, kind of untangle him uh, from the, the rigging. And I think he, the guy had like special um, paragliding ones where he was able to detach a little bit easier. I don't think he had to cut any, uh, any uh, parachute cords or lines. Cool. Um, but yeah, I just remember like in that second time, just having, like I said before, having to relax, like, because all I was focusing on was this one tree and like that tree wasn't going to move for 15 minutes. That tree just didn't move. And I just had to, to, to be able to do that. I had to relax like so much because 
every inkling in me wanted to just grab the crap out of that cycling. Uh, but yeah, that was that was something I just remember because like your your calves start to you know tense up. You're just you're just trying to hold a stable hover, and you just have to focus on the relaxing. Um, so yeah, I kind of do that. Definitely remember that. Uh, but finally, we were able to get um, get the strop. Or Colton was able to get the strop around him, uh, and then I just you know the, there's videos on the internet, but you can hear the the comms, and he's just like. <laughs> up 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 like hoist start hoisting you up in a way and that like when i started to hear that and he was clear of the tree that was just such a good sense of relief you know being able to get out of that like super precise hover um but yeah we were able to uh to get him off uh out of that tree and like darkness was probably about 45 minutes away so had we been any later like it probably wouldn't have happened just because that would have been just too much so yeah we landed on the beach set him down uh, I think overall, like injury-wise, he just had a you know, hurt ankle, probably a lot of other things. The hurt ankle was like the main thing. Um, but it was pretty cool. So like we sat down, get him to the EMS. And then as we depart, the um, uh, it's a campground. It's like a, all along the beach. And so as we're lifting off, we're starting to climb out. It's like a hero's like maverick type flyby because everyone's like taking pictures. They just, yes. they just witness these people like pick this dude out of a tree and we're at like 80 feet because we're climbing out right and yeah. up past this campground in a way it was it was pretty memorable just to go and do that and then head out and uh so that was pretty cool but yeah i remember landing back on deck and everyone you know you've probably had those cases where you land on deck and you're like oh man i'm glad that's over like we're on deck like that was really hard guys and colton was looked at me and he's like that was really hard sir and then tim's like that was really hard but like Right after we kind of just decompressed, it was just high fives everywhere. Like that was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> like, what a good case. So oh, yeah. I love it. But uh but yeah, two other crazy things. So that was like on a Tuesday, and I just so happened to have um camping reservations at Cape Lookout State Park for that weekend. And so nice. convenient. My my family and I go down there and we're camping, and I have a picture of my daughter on the beach running towards me with the parachute in the background on the cliff. It's freaking hilarious. So. Oh, yeah. you know, you got to send that so. to me, right? Oh, I'll send it to you. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send yes! it to you. So, but yeah. And then this, this one too is also memorable because the guy had, um, he had called the command center and wanted to talk to one of us and left his number. And so I ended up calling him and uh, he just was so appreciative of what we did. And, um, you know, he said he couldn't hold on much longer. So the fact that we were able to do that, and it sent, he's, we saved that guy's life. He would have died if he'd be thrown out of the tree. Um, so that was pretty damn cool. So yeah, uh, crew man, just just top notch. Like that was that was freaking awesome. So yeah, it was it was pretty damn good. So, that is incredible. Yeah. Well done, yeah, paraglider in a tree. Oh, oh yeah, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> uh, do you know i i can't get enough of this stuff you know that right I, I, I <laughs> it's love great i love listening to it. well it just lets us i like listening to it we live a little bit of the glory days you know yeah it's it's great so yeah it's the stuff that we get called up for you're like really yeah right. <laughs> dude stuck in a tree 300 feet what <laughs> yeah oh my yeah, god it was pretty sweet so. well done well done you guys yeah, yeah. man freaking badass yeah. dude yeah. I'll tell you what, Andrew, uh, you have given us some amazing stories today. I, ca I cannot thank you enough for coming on. Um, but before I let you go, it, like, 
do you know, like it's kind of my last thing is any advice that you would pass on, especially for pilots, get, I am not a pilot. I can't emphasize it enough. I sit in the back. That's, that's my job. I'm the, I'm the back. I'm the rear crew guy. But mm-hmm. for all the pilots up there, what advice would you pass on with your experience and stuff you've seen? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, so you had interviewed uh, Dan Leary, right? And he, from memory, tried to do the laws of SAR according to Blake. And it turns, <laughs> yes, out that, it turns out that I actually took a picture of that when I was stationed in a story of the laws of the laws of SAR according yeah, to Blake. So I have them all. All right. So, all right. So I'll, go ahead, go. I'll go ahead and read them. I'll go ahead and read them all, and then I'll give you a little more more guidance. So okay, here we go. Um, so there, number one. So there has never been and never will be a fatality of a district controller dispatcher in a SAR case. Uh, a rack made before midnight will not be slept in. Everything you've been told to do is a lie. Five minutes of planning is worth two hours of flying. You forgot something important. Ninety-nine percent of all cases will turn out the same if you stay in your rack. Uh, you will not kill yourself or your crew from your rack. Uh, whatever you do will be second-guessed with better information than you had, and you will be found wrong. All medals are the result of a lapse in headwork or inaccurate press accounts. Black shoes, which are boat boaties, value medals. Real pilots do not. Uh, your ability to find a sucker hole is inversely proportional to your need to find it. And then the process of evolution cannot be stopped. And so that kind of that, that ties it. everything together. So so that was to, to help Dan out. I had taken a picture. I'd seen that somewhere on the uh, you know the server, uh, and I was like, whoa, okay, I got to remember some of those. So uh, for sure. But I think um, something I, I, I want to pass along is like I've heard about the three buckets, and the, you have a bucket of experience, which is a large bucket, and you fill that up over time, uh, and that just comes uh, with doing extra things, um, you know, teaching folks, being a mentor. Uh, being a mentee, uh, you know, uh, doing those kind of things just fills your bucket of experience. And then a bucket of knowledge, also a big bucket. It's got a big hole in it, though. So you got to keep putting stuff in it. Uh, and um, so as you continue to just uh, grow as a, as a pilot or as an air crew, you just have to keep adding knowledge. Uh, and then finally, you have a bucket of luck. No one knows how big that bucket of luck is. And occasionally, you have to use it. Uh, and uh, But again, you just uh, you just kind of continue to use that experience and knowledge buckets and you'll, you'll end up being uh, pretty good. So, but um, yeah, like anyone, if anyone's considering leaving the service, you know, and then we all eventually do, um, you know, please reach out to me. Uh, over the course of this last year, I, I left the service. Um, it's a hard decision, um, but it was right for me and my family time, or it's right for me and my family. And um, it's hard though. You got to make some tough decisions. Uh, finding a job's not easy. Uh, and getting out of the military is not easy. Uh, there's a lot of things I miss about it, uh, but there's a lot of things I don't miss about it. And um, but yeah, <laughs> I'll I think second that. <laughs> <laughs> there, um, you know, I think one thing that set me up really well was networking, and they just harp on this at HAI uh, Heli Expo. Uh, networking, 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 and uh, that definitely helped me out. Um, just because I was able to kind of talk to people, they introduced me to some other people. Um, sometimes the the job doesn't pan out that you wanted. Um, so you have to kind of face a little bit of um, setback and whatnot, but eventually, you know, you'll land the job that you want, um, which is great. Um, so yeah, I just recommend just networking, looking out. So uh, just, you know, reaching out to people, it helps so much. So 
Yeah, and then finally, just dude, Quinny, thanks so much for doing Real Rescue. Like, it is awesome. It's so great to hear these stories. It is just like, I have a pretty long commute back and forth with my job now, so I get to just relive glory days back and forth for my commute. Uh, it's so good. Uh, you know, plus, it also helps. Right now? <laughs> oh, I didn't, no, I didn't, no. I didn't plus, even pay you to say that. <laughs> you didn't, but you know what? I, I got time to fill, and it's so great just listening to stories. And it's funny, your last one you just released was with Sid, and I met Sid at the CHC Safety and Quality Summit. So I know him and he's in the Irish Coast Guard, but that's just because I was at some conference when I met him. So super good dude. Can't wait to listen to that one. Uh, so yeah, just uh, man, just look forward to seeing you in Atlanta. I can't wait to catch up and uh, yeah. share some more stories. So, For sure. Yeah. And we'll have to get a couple of pictures and stuff over there. Yeah. Heck yeah. That way, heck yeah. That way I can say, yeah. I know you. I, I know him. I know you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, uh, you had mentioned uh, people being able to like get in touch with you if they have questions and stuff. Uh, can you pass on your email address so that we can, yeah. I, I can drop that? Yeah, it's just uh, a and then jerrylimic at gmail.com. Find me on LinkedIn. Honestly, it's a, a public account. So if you just Google uh, my name, Andrew Jerrylimic uh, or Andrew Jerrylimic, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Um, and then I'll just, yeah, I'll help as much as I can. Because, so, you know, some other folks help me out. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a good tight knit group in the Coast Guard, so we'll help each other out. Oh so, yeah, yeah, sure. and I'm I'm happy to do the same. You, yeah, so yeah. whatever I can do. I, I think I actually offered that to you as well. Like, hey, you did just absolutely send me a resume. <laughs> and we can start from send there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Dude, Andrew, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. I and thanks for listening too. And I like a little twofold for me. I'm I'm stoked. I appreciate it. Um, I oh, definitely yeah. look forward to seeing you at Heli Expo in March, Atlanta. It's gonna be fun. So Heck yeah. it's going to be badass. But, and until then, uh, you fly safe, and, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. Heck All right, yeah. All right, brother. I'll see you later. And with that, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q.com. You can also check us out on our web pages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember, when that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard.